0: Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. As I said tonight... I want to talk about listening with the heart. We started to do it in the meditation. And it becomes so important in this time. Here we are, these human beings in human incarnation. No one knows quite how you got here, but you did. We did. And we're here for a certain measure of time in this mystery. And there's 7.5 billion of us as human beings And then of course, trillions of other beings on this planet. And how do we relate to one another? How do we relate in this mystery where we're not alone, where we're born out of the body of our mother, where we're cared for and raised by others, where we're completely interdependent with the world. And yet at the same time, as we can see, even from very small children, We also have our wants and hopes and needs, and we get in conflict with one another. How do we listen and how do we tend one another and ourselves wisely in this mystery? I want to start with a story that some years ago, we had a visit at Spirit Rock, probably 20 or 25 years ago on Monday night from the Tibetan Gyuto Tantric Choir. Uh, and the Gyuto monks are one of the uh, groups of monks from one of the great Kalupa monasteries who do that deep multi-vocal chanting. They get, they get all the overtones with it. And they came to visit, which was already quite magic. And then they were invited to go and sing with the San Quentin Gospel Choir at San Quentin Prison. And friends who helped to arrange for this brought them into the prison. And then as they were getting set up in the largest room in the prison where many, many inmates could come. And on one side was the San Quentin Gospel Choir. On the other side were these monks the person who organized it got a little bit nervous and concerned how these monks would appear because most of the men they were in the San Quentin Gospel Choir had become quite fervent evangelical Christians and becoming Christians had really connected them to a life of the heart and spirit and had really saved their lives. So she thought, hey, how are these monks gonna look? They'll probably look like heathens. And on top of that, they were short and bald and they were all wearing skirts. So how are they gonna relate to these little, short, you know, skirt-wearing heathens coming in? Um, But she was wise, my friend Mirabai, Mirabai Bush. So when she introduced them, She said, I want to tell you about these monks before they sing for you. Almost all of them have been in prison. They were in prison for the voice they had, for what they did, for the things they stood up for. Many of them were tortured in prison, had done long years. And then when they escaped or when they were released, They walked over the highest mountains on the earth, sometimes with very little to keep them warm and found a community of exiles that they live in, but they're unable to go home to their families, to their place. And what has kept them going through all of these years of prison and torture and exile and unable to go home, what has kept them going is their song. So they'd like to sing their song for you, which they did, oh, that beautiful song. And then the San Quentin gospel choir said, okay, we have songs for you. And of course, then not being COVID time, afterward, they all hugged one another and loved each other because they could feel that they were brothers. Now we live in such divisive times and there's so many different views about what should happen to the Supreme Court with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, about climate change, about economic and racial justice, about the pandemic. And we do this with these views as a culture of us and others, of tribe and tribal, who's in our clan, who's not, who's our people, who's the ones we believe, who's the ones that we don't. And what these divisive times ask for more than anything else is an ability to listen with the heart. And the first thing to start with is that, like those in the San Quentin prison could understand the tantric choir, that there is suffering. This is the first noble truth of the Buddha, and it's where we begin in our shared incarnation. This from Glennon Doyle who writes, you will never change the fact that being human is hard. So you must change your idea that it was ever supposed to be easy. It's the way human incarnation is. It has joy and sorrow and praise and blame and birth and death and gain and loss and all of these things, conflict and peace, These make up our human life. But the teachings of the noble truths of the Buddha begin with suffering, that everyone's life contains some suffering. It will, but that suffering isn't the end of the story. Then in fact, there are causes, greed, fear, hatred, ignorance, and there's a path to the end of it. Compassion, loving awareness, mindfulness, and so forth. So the question is not whether there's suffering, but how do we respond to it? And in the Buddha's teachings on wise society, even amidst the difficulty in those times where there was also warfare and famine and other kinds of epidemics and so forth, the Buddha said, if a society comes together and listens to each other in harmony with respect for one another and departs in harmony, they will prosper and not decline. If they treat the vulnerable among them, the children, the women, those who are ill with care and respect, they will prosper and not decline. If they treat the environment in which they live with care and respect, they will prosper and not decline. So now I want to read you a, a story, one of my favorites. And some of you may know it, but it's a little like a bedtime story. You get to hear it all over again. And this is the attendant from the Buddha Ananda, who is the most beloved of his monks, apparently just the most warm-hearted and gracious. And Ananda, had, having been sent by the Buddha on a mission, returned passed by a well near a village. And seeing Pakati, a young untouchable, an outcast, asked her for water to drink. And she replied, O oh monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am the, the lowest caste. And the racism of that caste system was such that if you were a child, still in villages in India as an untouchable If your shadow falls on the food of someone of a higher caste, they have to throw it out because it pollutes them. If you can imagine what that's like to be a child and feel that you are that repulsive to the rest of the world. But Ananda gazed at her kindly and said, I ask not for caste, but for water, please. And it's the one thing monks are allowed to ask for. They can't ask for food. They stand there with a bowl but you can ask for water, especially on a hot day as it was. And Pekati's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink. And he thanked her and went away, but she followed him at a distance. And having heard, he was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to him and said, Blessed one, let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, so that I may see and care for him, for I love Ananda." And it's true, he was supposed to be handsome as well as gracious and charming. That always helps in these fairy tales and stories. And the Blessed One understood her emotions, the emotions of her heart, and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others And though you are born in what is called the low caste, you will be a model for noble women and noble men. Swerve not from the righteousness and goodness, and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. And this is such a beautiful story of what it means to meet someone who has been outcast in the society by whatever cause or reason. And it can be by race or caste or, class or orientation, or it can be in other ways. You can be in a liberal enclave and then see somebody wearing a MAGA hat, or you can be in the middle of the country in a very red state and see somebody who's holding a Black Lives Matter sign. And you can feel like those people, they're the other. But this is a story about not othering anyone, of meeting them with respect. Now, as I speak about deep listening, I'll do the journalist thing. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'll tell you, and then I'll tell you what I told you, so you really get it tonight. (laughs) Take a breath. And as we did in the meditation, let yourself listen and listen deeply. This is called listening from the heart. And the first step of listening from the heart, of course, is listening to yourself, as we did in the meditation, listening to our intuition, listening to what the body wanted us to remember, what our heart wanted us to remember. And listening with a a graciousness and a care, one of the wonderful articulations of this deep listening is that of the tradition or the practice of mindful self-compassion, which has grown over the years out of our teachings of loving awareness and compassion. And for those who don't know it, you can look up the books of Chris Germer and Kristin Neff, Mindful Self-Compassion, wonderful practice. And the main principles are self-kindness instead of self-judgment. So as you listen, not to evaluate and judge yourself, but actually bring kindness to this human incarnation that you have with all its joys and all of its pains, the tainted glory of it, as Oscar Wilde said. To hold yourself in kindness instead of self-judgment. And then to the second step of mindful self-compassion, is to recognize your common humanity. Instead of feeling that you're the bad one or the the one that should be judged or the isolated one, instead of all of this, of that isolation of your beliefs of judgment, to realize we're in it together. And to feel your common humanity when you're afraid, you're afraid with so many other beings or worried, when you're, in pain and you don't know what to do. You're dealing with the pain at the same time as 900 million other people are dealing with it. And all together, you're trying to braille your way, find your way how to deal with that pain. If you have loss, you're together with the hundreds of millions on this earth who are experiencing loss. And it's not your fault. It is your human incarnation. It's what makes your heart grow deep and wise self-kindness instead of self-judgment, common humanity instead of isolation, and then mindful loving awareness instead of being caught and identified with your thoughts. This is who I am, your beliefs about who you are, your feelings. Hold yourself not with all those views, but to hold it all lightly and graciously as if you were the loving grandmother or grandfather that could say, yeah, they're there, you're going through your stuff as we all do with a great and wise perspective. So this is inner mindfulness, inner listening with the heart. And then when you read the text on mindful listening and on mindfulness itself, the great Satipatthana text, it says to practice inwardly, and outwardly. So here's James Baldwin who writes about the terrible way that you can in this life be corralled and bullwhipped and har- hurt and harmed. And he says, you must find a way of using this to connect to others who are alive. You must understand that your pain is trivial except insofar as you can use it to connect with the pain of others and alleviate suffering not for yourself, but for us, for all. And so this is the outer listening. I had the privilege and pleasure of teaching together with Van Jones, who's a a friend and a really remarkable public intellectual and figure. He's a commentator on CNN. He's a founder of a number of amazing nonprofits. Yes, we code computer skills for people in the inner cities prison projects, uh, political projects. He was in the Obama White House for a time. Um, But what's remarkable about Van is that he's found a way to listen deeply to all those around him. And he's become a kind of beacon of those who can reach across the aisle, even in such divisive times. So when we were teaching together, he said, you know, I've learned since my exile from the White House, and now again, starting the nonprofits and becoming very visible, I've learned that I have to connect to the other side. So I work with Jared Kushner. Now, some people who were listening in this teaching together, took a breath and said, you're working with Jared Kushner. That's a stretch to imagine for certain folks. And he said, oh, yes. He said, because I've been working on changing the toxic and terrible prison system in America that puts so many people behind bars, especially people of color, black men and brown men and brown people and so forth to change this. And I realized, he said, that Jared Kushner would understand because Jared's father had been in prison for a white collar crime for a time. And I reached out and made a connection with him And in doing so, we talked about what federal law could be passed to help release people who had unfair sentences in the federal prison system. And I sent a message to President Trump saying no other president has been able to do any reform of the the prison system. None, None of them have been able to do it. And I left it at that. In a certain way, it was like a little dare. Okay, you think you're great, you know, or playing to that sense of the president. Nobody else could do it. And sure enough, Jared and the president not only helped with, with Van's help and others um, to respond to and craft legislation, but Van was invited to the White House for the signing of it as part of it. And he said, this is what I mean by listening deeply. He said, let me tell you another story. He said, with the opioid crisis and the number of people who are dying, which has increased under COVID and all the lockdown and made it all the worse for many, many of us. um, He said, I realized that the black community had learned so much about an epidemic of addiction in the 1980s and 90s from crack cocaine. And that we knew things about how to handle these waves of deep addiction in a community that caused so much suffering and death. So he borrowed a plane and he took 20 people from South Central Los Angeles, Black and Latinx, who'd been part of the crack epidemic in those communities and flew them to West Virginia, where they met with 20 West Virginians, mostly wearing red America Great Again hats. Uh, People at the other side of the table, there were sheriffs and addictions experts and bikers and whatever, all working on this. And then to make this conversation happen, Jared had asked that everyone who came into the room bring a large photograph of someone they knew and loved who had died of an overdose in the epidemic. And when they were all there in a circle, as they started, he said, I want each of you one at a time to hold up your photo and tell the story of that person. And by the time they were done and everyone talked about someone they had lost, They looked at each other and knew that they were in it together. They were brothers and sisters, they embraced one another and they became a team to understand how a community can recover and heal and tend itself in a time of this kind of epidemic. And I was so inspired when I heard these stories because it's really easy to get caught in left and right. And, you know, who's, who should be and who shouldn't be in charge and how things should go and othering politically, but in all kinds of other ways as well. And I realized that when we learn to listen like this to one another, listen deeply, not only do we get to know and connect with others, but it changes us, it changes you because you're not alone in your suffering and it's not your team or your people or your party or your side, it's us trying to find our way through it. And this kind of deep listening in an organization I've been a part of supporting for a long time called the Nonviolent Peace Force, whose vision is to have uh, standing peace army that can be called in before conflicts get to fighting and battle, or even in the middle of it, with people who are trained to listen to both sides, to go to both sides, to have the skills to make peace. And they have teams now in Syria and in Sudan and South Sudan and in the Philippines with the Moro army in the south, and teams in Burma in Rohingya province and in part of the other conflicts in Burma. But they also sent teams to Standing Rock and Minneapolis, just in case we were being left out in the conflict, which we're not. And what they do is find the local people who are loved and respected, and who want peace as leaders, and train them how to go and listen. There's a beautiful movie that I saw, and one of the leaders of the nonviolent peace force, Tiffany Easthorn, who's a kind of middle-aged, you know, blonde-haired woman, looks like she could come from any state in the country. And I see her sitting down in this with the warlords in South Sudan, together on two sides of her with the indigenous, the the, the people from those communities from South Sudan, from the, those who are Darfur refugees and those who are Sudanese and so forth. And she goes back and forth, bringing women leaders with her and sitting down with the warlords and like nonviolent communication, the partner in some way in understanding, asks them to describe their situation, to describe how it is to them. and to describe how it feels. This is nonviolent communication. Once you experience this, what does this feel like to you? And then ask them on every side, what do you need? And to make a request then, if your needs could be fulfilled, what would you request of the other side? And we can do this ourselves, you know? Somebody we work with or we live with, they're late. And then we say, well, they're late all the time because they don't care. That's our idea. But the observation is just that they're late. Why is it? We start to get curious. Well, the observation makes me feel that she or he's late because they don't think I'm important or the work we're doing isn't important. I'm not valued. So you might express that. And then you connect and you're asked, well, what do you need? I need to feel that you're with me. I need to know that whether you're late or not that we're really in this together. And then make a request. Can you please let me know if you're gonna be late or let me know what's happening? I need to know that you're really there with me. This is a simple, simple process, heartfelt, deep listening Nonviolent Peace Force, can you imagine what it's like for a country or a part of the world to call on this before the war starts? Now, of course, I'm talking about listening in this way, whether it's in South Sudan or Syria or Standing Rock. But it can get more close in. I listened to a TED Talk by a lawyer named Neil Katyal, K-A-T-Y-A-L. And at age 36, he was in charge of a case that went to the Supreme Court about the prisoners in Guantanamo. It was his first Supreme Court case. He's now done a number and cut to the chase. He won the case against all odds. And the case was really a powerful case because it required that the CIA and so forth stop having the black prisons where they would hide people. It required people even in Guantanamo and elsewhere to be treated with some of the rules of uh, legal justice. It really was a remarkable case and no one thought he would win it. And he described what happened. He said he was a good, really smart and good lawyer, which was why he was chosen. And he made a great legal case, he thought. And then he went up to Harvard and sat down with some of the great law professors, probably Larry Tribe or Dershowitz or whatever, and tried his case out on them and they listened and critiqued his case. And he was getting ready to go to the Supreme Court. And a friend said, you should get an acting coach. Now this is not part of general law school instruction. You have to understand. He thought it was a strange kind of idea, but he did get an acting coach. And so the acting coach came and said, all right, you're going to go to the Supreme Court. I want to hear you make your case. And he pulled out his yellow pad and he started to read and make his case as strongly as he could. And the coach stopped him and said, what are you doing? He said, I'm making my case. And the acting coach said, you're not making your case, you're reading from your damn yellow pad. He said, stop, and I want you to do it differently. Turn your pad over. I want you to look me in the eyes, and I want you to look at me deeply and tell me what you have to say. And the whole tenor of his voice changed and he made this direct communication and it sounded better, as you can imagine. And then the acting coach said, all right, that was somewhat better. Let's take it another step. And he moved right close to him and he said, now I want you to hold my hand. We're going to hold hands together. And now I want you to look me in the eye and make your case. And holding hands, he looked him in the eye and said, this is what I care about. These are the people. He said, and with the Supreme Court, you don't bring your own emotions in. What you do is you tell the story in such a convincing way that it allows them to have their own emotions about it. But your job is to listen and to connect deeply. Can you hear this level of attention and care? Now, of course, it's not just at the Supreme Court. I recently watched a remarkable video movie on Netflix, entitled My Octopus Teacher. And I recommend it to you if you want to write it down, My Octopus Teacher. It's quite far out. And it was made by a visionary filmmaker, Craig Foster. He and his brother are two of the most celebrated filmmakers in Africa, and they've done films on the Sun, on, the, on the bush people and um, tracking in the Kalahari and all kinds of other remarkable things. And he lives at the very southern tip of South Africa and got kind of burned out after 15, 20 years of traveling and filmmaking and needed to just take some time off and began to swim in the cold waters off the tip of South Africa as an adventurer and when he went into the bay and was swimming in the bay near him into this amazing kelp forest one day he saw an octopus in its den and he got very quiet and he saw it come out and jet around it was a pretty good size octopus and he thought, wow, that was amazing. When it saw him, instead of going to its den, it went right to the floor and then it instantly changed its color as they can do from being red to matching exactly the rocks and sand around it. So it was hardly visible. To watch the octopus change its skin and color like that is remarkable. And he said, oh, I have to learn more about this. So he went down the next day in the next free diving And staying under, he trained himself to stay under for about three minutes with a snorkel, free diving. And as he did, he said, Well, to learn, like the trackers in the desert that he was with, the San people, he said, I guess I really have to pay attention. And he made a resolve, he said, I'll come every day. And maybe if I'm down here with the octopus every day nearby, at some point, it won't be so scared of me. And he went down for a week and two and three weeks. And after a few weeks, the octopus was looking out and there he was and tentatively came out and nothing happened. And little by little, it started to do its octopus life and not do anything about him. And then he got a little bit closer and this is the beginning of the scene. It gets way cooler than this. And he was relatively close to the octopus's den. One day its eyes came out, it came out a little bit and then he extended one of its tentacles and touched his cheek and his mouth to feel with its tentacles like, what is this being that keeps hanging out in the water outside of my den? And this was the beginning of a relationship where he went down every single day for more than a year to be with this octopus and learn from it. And they're remarkable. They have huge brains which extend through all their limbs. They're a completely different kind of nervous system than anything in the mammal world, um, and incredibly smart. You know, like when I was at Monterey Bay Aquarium and the keeper who was taking us around. Um, backstage said, oh, this, this big octopus, these two octopus, two different tanks are so smart. She said, we put a jar of oysters. You know, those jars you can buy at the supermarket. They're hard to open, but mm, oysters for an octopus. We put a jar in here and the octopus had it and turned it upside down. And then it took it a while, but mm, after you know, wrestling with it for a long time, 20, 30 minutes. It figured out how to unscrew the top and eat the oysters. The octopus in the next tank was watching. We put a jar of oysters in the next tank and immediately it unscrewed the top and ate them. They're really, really smart. So here is a different kind of listening. It's listening to the natural world, it's stopping and taking time and say, what is it that we have to learn? What does it have to teach us? When there is conflict and difference in the Buddhist teachings, because there was conflict even in the time of the Buddha's own life between various monks and nuns and so forth, there is a whole process of deep listening, of coming together, of telling each side face to face, of non-stubbornness of being asked, what is your contribution to this difficulty? And then of covering mud with straw, of realizing I can hear the other side. Let us find a way to walk over this mud to a place that's peaceful. Deep listening to one another. Some years ago, we had a meeting of the mindfulness vipassana meditation teachers at our center in ims in barry at insight meditation society and i had been convening these meetings now for for, i don't know 40 or 50 years i wanted to bring teachers together and i'd invited a lot of the teachers who came to ims to be part of the teaching team but conflict started to grow and the main conflict that started to grow was between the conservator teachers who wanted to keep the things very traditional as we had learned them in Asia and as they'd been passed down and the adapters who wanted to change it for modern Western culture. And this was exemplified by two of the main teachers there, both of whom were friends, one of whom I'd invited in and the other I respected a lot, but they were really upset with each other. The adapter one he just wants to throw things away and be like Krishnamurti, no form. Everybody should just find freedom where they are and forget tradition. And the conservative one who wanted everybody to read the original text and not lose the core of it and keep the Buddhist teachings as they were. So there we were, and there was a lot of heat between them. How should we go forward? They didn't really like what the other was doing. But Robert Hall, a wonderful teacher and who was part of that community, Robert, who died last year, and a dear heart friend of mine. He was our moderator and psychiatrist at the time. And he did a really interesting thing. He said to the person who was the most um, rabble-rousing activist-type person who wanted to change everything and make it free, he said, would you please leave the room for a bit? We just want to talk. And have you outside if you don't mind. And so that person left. And then he said, all right, if this person who wants to dispense with the tradition and keep awareness just free and straightforward without all the Buddhist stuff in it, if this person were gone, how would you feel? And the whole room relaxed a little. Wow, we don't have the flamethrower with us. We're more easy about it. Ah, we can take it easy some. And then he asked the second question, well, if he weren't here with us at all, how would it affect you? And I realized, and I said, well, if he weren't here, I would want to look at how we need to change things more actively. But since he's doing it, I don't have to do that so much. I've left it to him and he's pulling us in that direction. Then that person was invited back in the room, that teacher, And the most conservative teacher was asked to leave. He went out and Robert asked, so how do you feel? And we said, well, it's a bit easier. We esteem that person as we did the other, but now at least we don't have all that conflict, that person's aversion to the way things were going and how they were being changed. We can relax some more. And then he asked, well, how will you, how would it affect you if this person is gone? And I said, oh, if he's gone, I've got to teach the texts more. I've got to teach more of the tradition. But because he's teaching it, it gives me the freedom to teach other things and change it. And we began to realize, as Robert pointed out so beautifully, that it wasn't that one was right and one was wrong, but they were part of a deeper mandala that we were part of one another and we needed the conservators and we needed the adapters and we always do. It's been that way since the very beginning. In fact, I said, you know, this argument started right after the Buddha died. Should we keep it just the way it was, or should we change it in different cultures, you know, in different ways and people were struggling about, I said, we're probably those same monks and nuns reborn again and having the same damn argument. But there was something really meaningful in it because it opened my mind just as hearing van jones talk opened my mind and heart to realize the mandala that we're in it together and that we carry the dilemmas of being human and the gifts of human to get being together and if we look at the hot button issues of our time you know in our culture there are things to learn from every side from the conservative side and I am, you know, by nature, I tend to be progressive in my views. I don't want to put them on anybody as the Dharma, your views are your views. I tend to be that way. But when I listen to the conservative concerns about the loss of family, about the loss of religion and spiritual values in a culture that's becoming increasingly materialistic and consumer-based, and as the Buddha says in his teachings, you know, he said, those who are wise without ties, without clinging to their views are liberated in the heart. But those who grasp after views, they wander about the world, annoying other people. Now this is one of the times I think the Buddha had a little sense of humor about it, but what does it mean as Van Jones did to begin to listen in a caring, and deep way to one another. And of course it's exacerbated by what's online. And if you haven't seen it, there's a great film called The Social Network from the Center for Humane Technology that describes the echo chamber we get because of the algorithms. If you have a QAnon view or a radical liberal view or a yellow view or a red view or whatever, The algorithms pick that up and they feed you the news that's what you're already watching, like an echo chamber, you know, or because it's all about getting eyeballs and attention because that's what gets money. The more attention, the more money, they go to the brainstem. They scare you with fear. They put sex on there in different ways, but it's like trying to get that part of you. They throw you conspiracy series, you know, and then here's these poor teenage girls looking at, you know, Instagram and, and so forth, and looking at their own bodies and thinking there's something wrong with them, because of the because of the way uh, that the social media has capitalized and, and um, colonized our consciousness. So then the question is, what can we do? First, it really requires a change of heart listening within yourself. Yes but also being willing to listen to others. So when I stand out almost every day with my Black Lives Matter sign and a busy intersection that also says time for economic and racial justice, I get cheers and thumbs up and waves sometimes. You know, I get all kinds of curses. And because it's a stoplight, people will stop and say that thing to me. Or they'll say, oh, that's so stupid. And I say, well, do you think economic justice matters? What does matter to you? I'm curious, you know, and as I listen, I get to relate to the people, not just the ones that like me, but the ones who don't like what I have to say. And I try to do it with friendliness and an open heart. I pause. I listen. I sometimes give them a bow at the end, especially if they're tough and difficult. Thank you. Thank you for your point of view. I appreciate it. I'll try to take it to heart. You want to know what we can do? It's to begin to listen to each other in some very, very deep and wonderful way. And to realize that in spite of the divisiveness, we can do it differently. Where others hoard, we can help. Where others deceive, we can stand up for the truth. Where others are rigid or overwhelmed or uncaring, we can be kind and respectful. And thus we fulfill what the Buddha speaks of the creation of a wise society. The greatest thing you can do for another being, says Ramdas, is to provide the unconditional love that comes from making contact with that place in them that's beyond changing conditions, pure consciousness, pure essence. Everything transforms once we become the loving witness and can see with those eyes that the others are us, are ourselves as well. This is outer mindfulness. This is a listening with the heart and it's an invitation in this time. But first a little tiny poem from Gwendolyn Brook. We are each other's business. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. And this has those mysterious words of a poet that speak about who are we? We are one another. We are each other's business, whatever you think. We are each other's harvest. We are each other's magnitude and bond. I just wanted us to really reflect on what does it mean to listen and to care? no matter what the views of another might be or where they come from. And I think Van Jones to me is an inspiration, you know, picturing him in West Virginia with all those people in a circle, holding those photographs of people who died that they loved and saying, here we are human beings together. What shall we do? What will love, ask of me today, what would love have me do today? So with that, I end this teaching for you, for whatever you might find of value, whatever is beautiful, take and what's not, leave behind. Thank you.